0: So let's take a look at this text, and then we will, let's read it, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Um, Matthew 11, 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And it's at this point that you begin to get the impression like maybe Jesus is kind of going to be sort of close guarded with this, with this information of knowing the Father. But in the very next verse, open invitation. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light let's pray god we thank you so much father for the open invitation that you give to all of us in this room, to all the world, Lord, just to come, to draw near to your Son. Whenever we experience the difficulties of life, whenever our souls are feeling heavy laden and burdened, and we feel as though we toil, and this life is nothing but endless drudgery, when we think that there's just a weariness in it all, and that there's no point to any of it, when we feel utterly broken, It's at that place that you meet us with your grace and your love. And we just say thank you for that. Father, my prayer is for those who are gathered here today, if there are any present who are struggling under heavy labors, heavy burdens, that you would speak comfort to them, that you would speak peace to them this morning, that you would lift those burdens from their shoulders. Father, my prayer is that as we leave this place, we would know the gentle rewarding, loving yoke that opens all of life's blessings, the yoke of your Son. So please, Father, open our eyes to see that. As paradoxical as it is, help us to find the real freedom. Shine your Spirit upon this text so that we can see it and open our minds to understand and open our hearts to believe. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we're working our way through Matthew chapter 11, and you're also going to see this in Matthew chapter 12, as we're working our way through the text, there's a lot of challenging and and difficult things. And then we come to the very end of the chapter, chapter 11, and we'll see it again in chapter 12. We come to the very end of the chapter, and there's just this sweet, open invitation That's available to all of us. Now, we're going to be eating Thanksgiving dinner later today, maybe tomorrow. Some of us, maybe, we already have already eaten it. If you're like me, you're probably going to have family over, or friends, close neighbors, um, and and you're going to sit down and you're going to eat. And I'm guessing that unless you're just a total jerk, like me, you're not going to say, this is all really great and all, but where is the pumpkin pie? let's just jump straight to dessert. Forget all this turkey. Forget all this. I just want the good stuff. Now, most of you are kind of like, yeah, you are a jerk. Some of you are like, that's right. That's what I'm saying. Pumpkin pie, amen. Okay, right on. (laughs) Levi's giving me the head like, yeah, yeah. I love pumpkin pie. I love dessert. I love uh, sweet potato pie too, for that record. I love all things pie. You just need to know that. I'm a pie man. I enjoy pie. But most of us, we're going to be polite. And we're going to work our way through the meal as is proper and fitting. And there's a lot of good things there as well. You know, turkey and gravy and mashed potatoes and all that kind of stuff. There's good things there. If you and I are struggling... Uh, it's a late night, you have a, a paper to do, you're a TRU student, and you know, you got finals and whatnot to do the next day. Some of you, you're at work, there's a big project or a big business presentation. Some of us, as moms and dads, our daughters are getting ready to be in the school play the next day, we've got to sew that costume up and all that sort of stuff. You know, at the last minute, at the 11th hour, it's late at night, you're up late, you're tired. One of the things you can do to kind of boost your stamina, is kind of give you that extra little jolt to keep going is you can drink a sugary caffeinated beverage, you can eat something with a lot of sugar or or a lot of caffeine in it, and it'll give you that jolt that keeps you going. That's an okay thing to do every once in a blue moon. But for those of you who are more health-minded among us, who are more health-conscientious, you know that if you're wanting to really develop stamina and endurance, that's the worst thing you can do to constantly be turning to the sugar and the caffeine, the dessert at the end of the day to give you that extra little boost, that extra little stamina to keep you going. If you really want to develop stamina, if you really want to develop endurance, there's a whole lot less sitting on the lazy boy and eating Twinkies, and there's a whole lot more of going running and walking and exercising and eating right and eating your vegetables and all those sorts of things. It is actually the savory meal which provides the nutrients that you need to get through the day. The little sugary dessert at the end just tastes good. It's got some sugar. It'll give you that quick pick-me-up. But really, true stamina is based upon the meal that precedes it. When we look at Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12, we're going to find it here at the end of chapter 11 and again at the end of chapter 12, this amazing, wonderful, sweet, just delicious invitation. But don't yank those verses out of context. They're preceded by a great deal of of substantive meat that we have to chew through. When Christ offers us this information, this invitation, come to me all you who labor, who are heavy laden. It's important to remember that this comes at the end of a very challenging, very intense dialogue that he's had with the crowds. Just to kind of refresh you of what's come ahead, you've got John the Baptist. He's gone out preaching in true Baptist fashion, fire and brimstone style preaching type of sermons. He's telling them, you know, the axe is laid to the root of the trees and the Baptist is going to... He's preaching about that God's going to burn us all the ground. And the crowds are enjoying that. They're eating that up. Jesus comes along, totally different style. He's going to parties. He's drinking. He's enjoying himself. He's performing miracles. He's healing people. And Jesus makes a statement to the crowd. He says, you know, it didn't matter how we preached it to you. It didn't matter whether we came preaching fire and brimstone. It didn't matter whether we came with sugar and sweetness. It didn't matter whether John the Baptist is telling you, you all better repent. It didn't matter whether I'm coming here saying, you're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You guys, you just didn't want it. Then he turns around and he says, you know, when it comes to certain cities that he's been ministering in, Bethsaida, Capernaum, he's saying Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom are in a better position than these cities because they didn't have the opportunities to hear the message that you guys had. And if they'd heard it, they would have repented. Then he says, thank you, Father. Because you haven't revealed these things to the wise and the understanding, but to little children. We understand as we approach this invitation that the background, everything that Jesus is saying here, come to me, is going to require this humble, humble, Childlike virtue. We're going to take everything he's saying like a child with faith. Because there's an incredible paradox here in what Christ is saying. If you want rest, if you want freedom, you're going to have to put on the Lord's yoke. And when we say yoke, That doesn't exactly sound restful or freeing in any sense. Which means that the only way you grasp this invitation that Christ is offering us is if you grasp it based upon the meal which has preceded this wonderful dessert, like a child. Let's look at the text. He makes a statement, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And he makes the promise, I will give you rest. What does this expression mean? This expression, labor or heavy laden. You'll see the antithesis or the opposite of this expression is found at the tail end of verse 29. Jump down halfway through. He makes the statement, take my yoke and and learn from me. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Here's the expression, you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy easy and my burden is light. When he says all who labor and are heavy laden, negative terms are replaced at the end of the passage with positive terms. These positive terms are intended to be the opposite of the negative terms. So whenever he says labor, what exactly is Christ getting at when he says that, labor? Or when he says heavy laden, what exactly is Christ saying when he says heavy laden? He presents the opposite at the end of his invitation in which he says, yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So, labor, when he says labor, you have this idea in your mind when he presents the opposite of it is easy, that he's talking about hard labor, difficult labor, the type of labor that doesn't necessarily produce the results that you want it to produce. He's talking about drudgery, just endless toil. I don't want you to flip there, I just want you to listen. This is a, a piece of wisdom that is common to the Jewish culture. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to Ephesians later, don't flip here to Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he makes the expression, this is uh, Solomon, in verse 5 he says, the sun rises and the sun, the sun goes down uh, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind uh, returns. And it makes a statement: all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. In all things they are full of weariness. This is in Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, presents this picture of the earth, all things on the earth and the earth itself. There's this constant cycle of busyness, doing and doing and doing. All the rivers are running to the ocean. The sun, a little later on, he's going to say the sun goes around, and it goes around, and it just keeps going around, and there's this constant, repetitive nature to the earth. And despite all the rivers running to the ocean, the ocean just is never full. And despite all the work and all the labor that we do, it never produces, never satisfies. And the heart of Ecclesiastes is this sort of understanding. He uses the expression, vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The idea being that despite all of the efforts that we put into stuff, despite our best intentions and our hardest labor, you give yourself totally to doing something. At the end of the day, when we step back and we look at the sum of our lives, what have we actually accomplished? What is actually enduring? What is actually lasting? When we step back and we look at our lives, we find that even when we take joy in our work, even when we try to do it as good as we possibly can to the glory of God, it's never done. It always breaks apart. It always falls down. And we're never fully satisfied. I love a beautiful yard. I love mowed beautiful grass. It's the middle of October, and my grass is still growing. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm a little ticked off at that. Because I'm tired of mowing my grass. I would like it clean, mowed, and it just keep growing. I'm like, come on man, it's October. I mean the grass shouldn't be growing at this time of year, but it still is. That's the kind of frustration the Solomon is getting at. You want things to look a certain way, you apply yourself to the situation. It does look good. You do have some results for a while. And then you look out and it's like, oh my gosh, there's like a forest out there, and I gotta, you know, snow still hasn't fallen to like cover it all up. And <laughs> I guess I have to go mow that thing again, even though it's the middle of October. The Jews live in a very religious society. As you and I consider the frustration of normal work and just how no matter how much we apply ourselves to our work, there's just never any satisfaction. I want you to think about that concept in your mind and multiply it times, I don't know, infinity when it comes to your spiritual walk with God. Imagine living in a culture where they say, go to church every Sunday, go or synagogue every Saturday, I should say. Go to synagogue every Saturday, do all the offerings. You got like three major feasts and a couple of minor feasts year round. You got to do all that stuff. You got to be sacrificing here. You got to be offering up all your offerings on the altar throughout the week and synagogue on on Saturday. And you know what? We still aren't convinced that that's spiritual enough. So in order to make sure we're really getting the max out of our Sabbath, you better take your Friday and you better just do all the work that you normally do on any given day of the week, like hauling water back from the well, cooking your meals, doing your laundry. You know what? You can't even do any of that stuff on your normal day off Saturday. You need to do all that stuff on your Friday or on your Thursday, so that by the time Saturday rolls around, then you'll be ready to actually fully enjoy it. So you do all that, and they're like, you know what? We're going to overthink this thing some more because we're still not sure we're getting the most out of our Sabbath. We're not sure we're getting the most out of our spiritual walk with God. So when it comes to Sabbath, you know how you guys walk to, to synagogue? Well, you know what? You can only take so many steps. Otherwise, you're working. So you better make sure you're living within a certain distance of the synagogue. Otherwise, you're hooped because you've got to go to synagogue on Saturday. But you can only walk so many steps. And so you need to sort of conserve how many t- steps you're actually taking on your Saturday. Because, you know, if you have to take all those steps to get to church and back, then, you know, God forbid you can use the restroom or do anything like that because you've, like, maxed out your steps for the day. So, you see, they've taken this idea that we're not fully satisfied In any of the work that we do in life, and there's always more work to be done, they've coupled that with this sort of spirituality, and they're like, okay, even when it comes to our our work with God, in terms of trying to honor and fulfill the law, there's still more to be done. There's still more and more and more, and it just keeps adding up and adding up and adding up. You're always working. But you're never happy... You put that on your relationship with God you're always trying to satisfy him but you're never really sure that he's satisfied. Jesus makes this statement. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. You know where else he uses that expression? Same book. Don't flip there. Just listen. Matthew 23. He makes a statement condemning the scribes and the Pharisees. the, The religious teachers. He says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they, they sit, you know, Moses' seat would be like a pulpit, right? Like, that's a position of teaching. They sit at Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. Do what they say, not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Jesus calls them hypocrites spiritual leaders claiming to be spiritual, telling you how it's supposed to be done. They don't do it. Now look at this verse, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. It looks like it's a slightly different expression than what Christ says in Matthew chapter 11. It's the same Greek words. When he says you labor and are heavy laden. In this culture, the Jews are laboring and are heavy laden under the heavy burdens that are hard to bear which the Pharisees and the scribes are putting on them. You know, this is true for us too. Just last night, a friend of mine posted a thing on Facebook. He's on a plane flying from DFW to Chicago and he sits next to a guy who just keeps talking his ear off. He's trying to read a book. you sat next to those guys. And uh, finally he he puts the book down and he's like, okay, like I think God's trying to get me to actually have a conversation with this man because this man keeps like talking to me and I'm trying to read this book. So they start to talk and uh, he asks him about his work and he asks him about his children and and they they get into a fairly deep conversation and then finally my friend, his name is David, he he asks him. he says, do you know, do you know God? Have you ever thought about like spiritual life? And this fellow on this airplane says, you know, I've been thinking an awful lot about that. I've got two friends, one committed suicide, and the other one died in a tragic accident. And ever since they've died, I can't stop thinking about where they would be. And that has created a lot of anxiety in my life. And so I'm working and doing the very best that I can do to be a good person. So that when I die, I can go to heaven. Now, that's a man who's heavy laden, church. That's a man who's bearing up under a tremendous burden. If you have any friends who are Islamic, who are Muslim, just pose that question to them What's it going to take for you to get to heaven? Fingers crossed. Praying five times a day, there's pilgrimages, there's journeys, there's prayers. At the end of the day, I I don't know, man, it's a scale, and I'm not sure where I'm at, if I've tipped those scales or not. Bearing up under a very heavy burden. You and I, we experience this. We have the same feelings sometimes, even as Christians. Is it enough? Is my Christian life sufficient? Is it good enough? Is God happy with me? The promise here is if you will yoke yourself to Christ, God is happy with you. Now, I could get into all kinds of in-depth analogies and explanations, but you know what? I don't need to. The question is, will you read this text and believe it? The statement is, You know, take Christ's yoke upon you and he says, you will find rest for your souls. Not, take my yoke upon you and maybe you'll find rest. Fingers crossed. He doesn't say that. In both instances, this is in the error's tense. It's a snapshot of past action that's been achieved. You come to Christ, you will find rest. It will happen. It will take place. It will be a finished, done, past tense snapshot of action. You will find rest for your soul. So, do you you believe that? Do you believe that if you will yoke yourself to Christ, there will be rest? I cannot explain it to you any more simply than the simple words on the page. If you join with Christ, there will be rest for your souls. And we've all known that when it comes to living this life, and we have many friends who make this same sort of expression, life is like quicksand. I feel like the harder I struggle against it, the less I produce, the the deeper I sink. There's this sort of Angst out there, like life should be both more and easier. There should be something more substantive, and it should not be as difficult. If we're approaching Christ the right way, we should know that satisfaction. Where there's more but less. There's something Deeper and more substantive, and it doesn't cost us as much effort. Do you know that kind of joy for your soul? I say, "Well, no, I'm waiting for you to explain it to me. OK, Look at what it says. Verse 29: How do we get more substance for our lives, more satisfaction in our labor, more joy in? in the way that we go through this life with less effort less toil no drudgery how do we get this thing that is light and easy and yet still in some sense a yoke Christ's expression here is come to me all who labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest there's the first promise next statement he makes it again at the tail end of verse 29 come to me take my yoke you will find rest for." souls. Now look at this verse right here, verse 29, first part of the verse. He says, take my yoke upon you. Whose yoke? Christ's yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you. Now, if you're in the States, they've got these stores, these restaurants all over the South. They're called Cracker Barrel. I have not seen anything quite the equivalent of it since my time here in Canada. Help me out here, guys. Is there any kind of a restaurant you can go to where they've got like farm and ranching stuff kind of just like all over the place where no no way not even close <laughs> Montana's is kind of a farming ranching kind of thing uh you know what I'm talking about like Cracker Barrel you've been there they don't have anything like, I haven't seen anything like that okay you walk into this store if you're ever in the states and you see a Cracker Barrel just for the sheer curiosity that your pastor mentioned it in a sermon once upon a time you've got to go check this place out like, you walk in and you feel like you're stepping back into like 19, early 1900s farming world. You know, they've got like old school plows. They got like, and you will see, your your waitress will sit you down, sit down at a table. They've got like straight up, they got yokes on the wall. So if you've never seen a yoke, you're curious to know what a yoke looks like, you can Google it. That's like the lazy man's way of doing it. Or you can go to Cracker Barrel and get a good meal while you're staring at a piece of farm equipment. You know, like what better way to eat a meal than to look at farm equipment, right? So go check out Cracker Barrel and get some Southern food and look at farming instruments they've got this yoke there and yokes are doubled okay there's it's like a you know kind of like makes like this kind of shape right there's two like little humps in it like camel it's shaped like double camel hump kind of thing and uh, it's meant to go on the shoulders of two different animals it's double yoke so i mean and yokes are invariably doubled there's always typically two animals that go together when jesus says take my yoke upon you You need to understand, and it's true in this day and age as well, double yoke. There is another animal already in this thing pulling. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's already in this thing. And he's offering to all of us the invitation not necessarily to throw a piece of farm equipment on our back and start pulling a plow all on our own and he's like riding on the back of this plow which if you've never seen an old school plow that you ride on go to Cracker Barrel, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay? It's not like Jesus is riding on the back of this plow with you know his whip in hand going psh, psh, faster, harder, work better. That's not Christ. When he makes the expression to us, when he offers the invitation to us take my yoke upon you we understand that wherever we're at we're in a bad place because we're heavy laden and we're burdened and we're laboring when jesus says take my yoke upon you he's under the yoke which means that you are bearing whatever there is to bear alongside of christ and he promises us that it's light And easy. When you go to Cracker Barrel, ask to put the yoke on your back. They will not let you do it, but just ask. (laughs) And then come tell me about it because I I get a chuckle out of what they say. (laughs) If you put the yoke on your back, it's going to weigh a ton. It's going to hurt. You know, there's not like padding on this thing. You know, it's not like one of those little soft, cushy pillows you wear on an airplane. (laughs) It's a heavy piece of wood that's intended to like chained to a plow that weighs a couple hundred pounds and you're supposed to be pulling that thing right when you put that on your shoulders if you were to ever put it on your shoulders you wouldn't feel comfortable it wouldn't feel light and you wouldn't think you're about to engage in an easy task yet Christ is saying put it on my yoke so when we pull with Jesus it's not going to feel heavy. It's not going to feel hard. How do we do that? Look at what the verse says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And here's the substantive phrase. Learn from me. The essence of the Christian life the totality of what we're trying to do is to be happy. Is to get more for less. To feel like there's something substantive and that we're not hard-pressed to achieve it. And the response that Christ gives us in this text is that He's under the yoke with us. And the way that we strap ourselves to Him is that we learn from Him. I gave you this illustration last week. I uh, was privileged in my earlier days to work on a ranch. There was a horse there. His name was Jack. He was a, a pretty, pretty impressive horse, and uh, he, he was a colt. I was working on George Menifee's farm, and uh, he was a, a, an up-and-coming colt, and, and George Menifee, one day I'm out hauling hay, and George Menifee had to break this horse because all horses have to be broken. He strapped him to a harness so that the animal would start to understand and get comfortable with the weight of the harness on him. But of course, the animal naturally rebels against that. It's unnatural. It's not something that he enjoys. And so he started to pull, and he he tied this harness to this tree. And the horse is pulling against the tree and bucking and trying to rip the the tree to shreds. And of course, isn't able to do it. I walked by after about an hour of this, and the horse is laying on the ground, foaming at the mouth. He scraped his nose against the tree. He's got blood and foam running down his face, and it bothered me. And I. I was sitting there talking to George Menefee and he, he said, you know, it is an unpleasant thing, but this horse needs to know that he will get the most glory by trusting his rider. He can't jump as high, he can't move as fast, he can't cut as hard as a human rider knows he can. It will require the oversight of somebody riding this horse to take this this horse as far as he can really go. And the only way you do that is if you get the animal to a place where he's comfortable with the halter. This is when I was 16 years old. And I told you guys, I went back two, three years ago to go see Jack, this horse, to give him an apple. You know, because horses love apples. They mostly just eat hay and oats, so any kind of fruit they any kind of variety of their diet. They love that stuff. So we're, you know, it's a pretty tasty treat. I'm sitting there talking with George, we're catching up. This is when I was back in Texas a couple years ago. And like a jockey or somebody goes walking by, a rider goes walking by with like his saddle and all his buckles and gear and all this stuff. And this horse that I remember as a 16 year old kid hated putting any kind of thing on his face, rebelling against it with all his might. I got this apple, he's totally in the apple. He hears the jangle of the buckles he catches sight of the rider carrying the, the saddle and forget the apple. As this guy is walking down the fence line, Jack, the horse, forget me and George Menefee, he's trotting down the fence line looking at the rider. He's done. He's You know, over 20-year-old horse, he's, he's done his time. He's on his last leg, so to speak. No more, no more does he hate the bridle. No more does he hate the halter. He craves it. This animal won two state polo championships. became a polo horse. Three national conferences. Magnificent animal. Unbelievable talent. It lives for the roar of the crowd loves to have a rider on his back he's tasted something of the glory he's come to understand something of the joy and the honor of competing and performing well and now he lives for it it's no longer a difficult thing to have i mean you know, 150-pound, 200-pound man on the back of a 1,400-pound animal, that's an afterthought. He doesn't even phase the horse. The burden of a jockey, the labor of a bridle, what was initially perceived by the animal to be pure cruelty, slavery at its finest, now it's like, whatever, this is fine, I can do this. In fact, it comes to cherish the bridle as the gateway to competing on the field hearing the clap and the applause of the audience I told you last week what Jesus is going to say to us is going to sound arrogant we're not going to like it, we're going to buck against it I know, I did too but what he's going to say if you'll take it like a child on faith you'll know joy You will know easiness. You will know rest for your souls. And then it won't seem that way, but you will. When Christ gives us this image of this yoke, first and foremost, you have to understand that within a yoke, there's two animals there. He's offering you his company, his society, his friendship. You are always going to be with Jesus when you take his yoke upon you. Number two, you understand, yoke is a farming instrument. It's intended to provide a service. There are two things here. Number one, you're with Jesus. Number two, there is still a work to be performed. There's still a duty to be done. And the question is, what is that duty? This text says it very simply. The command here is very straightforward. Verse 9, take the yoke. In other words, the first job that any of us have to do in the Christian life, the first step, and he alludes to it here, I'm gonna give you a little bit more details in just a second. The first thing that Jesus says, the singular thing that we have to start with and then continue the Christian life through, is by simply saying, Jesus is the boss, Jesus is in control, his yoke is going to be on my shoulders, he will pull with me, but at the end of the day, I need to understand that I'm supposed to be pulling somewhere with Christ, which means that the yoke implies service, it implies submission. And you guys are thinking, how is that? Like, I'm not, submit, forget that, no way. There's no way. And like I said, you can only take this like a child. The Bible is very clear. If you want to know rest for your souls, if you want to know light, easy, joyful substance, your life. The clue to your success, the key to you being happy in life is not you doing whatever the heck you want whenever the heck you want to. And I know that goes against everything that we understand in our culture. We are a commitment phobic culture. We just would rather all of us keep our options open. And yet the scriptures are clear that's the wrong way to find any kind of substance substantive, lasting happiness or joy in your life. Now flip with me to Ephesians chapter five and everybody get prepared to be offended because it's going to happen. Okay. Which is why I built up to all of that with like, take it like a child on faith and all that kind of stuff. It's true. Verse 22. Now, sorry, we're going to start at verse 19, verse 18, where the sentence begins, it makes a statement. Don't get drunk with wine. What happens when you drink too much alcohol? You lose control. You lose control of your faculties. You get drunk, right? So the antithesis of that, don't get drunk with wine. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, you understand? The Spirit is what you receive at the moment that you yoke yourself to Christ. It's that indwelling presence of God in your life that guides you, that directs you, that shows you the path which you should walk in. He says, don't get drunk because you lose control. Rather, pursue being filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens as a result of that? Now, a couple of things. You address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So you're, you're worshiping God. He says, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. Thanksgiving, quintessential nature of a creature before his creator is to give thanks. And for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. To take the yoke on implies straightforward submitting to Christ Here the expression is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is not possible as Christians for us to say that we are filled with the Spirit, that we are worshiping God, that we are grateful for the things that God has given to us in our life if we are not first submitting to Christ. But any submission to Christ, as verse 19 makes emphatically clear, will naturally involve a submission to the God-ordained, biblically ordained Authorities that God has placed in your life. A worshiping person is a submitted person. A spirit filled person is a submitted person. A grateful person is a person who is submitted to God as well as to the God ordained authorities in his life. Now, so far, so good. For starters, I'm going to say men submit first. So just skip over verse 22 for a second and come back to that. Let's start in verse 25. Husbands, okay, men, all right, good, all right. You have to submit, okay, submit. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that, she might, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love should love their wives as their own bodies. Men, to be yoked to Christ, I'm going to start with you. I always get problems when I start with, the other, with women. The passage starts with women, but I'm going to start with men first, okay? Men and women, you just need to know that I'm talking to the men first, okay? So nobody kind of jumped me after the worship service. Men, some of you, You've never told me. This is not like, just so the ladies know, it's not like me and the guys are sitting around bickering about our wives. That doesn't happen. But I just know that some of you are wishing that you had peace in your home, that maybe your wife and you didn't fight so much. The problem here might partially be with your lady, but it's with you as well. Do you really feel think that your wife is going to have a whole lot to gripe about if you're living your life in submission to Christ, making it your singular goal in life to cultivate your wife like she's a beautiful flower, to try and help her to become all that she wants to be out of life, telling her the reason I'm doing these things, baby, is because I want you to be the woman that God wants you to be. I'm trying to make you awesome not in the sense that I'm like, ah, this is stupid. I don't like that. Oh, no. Why don't you do the dishes? Go do the laundry, blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm talking about here. And I know some of the ladies are hearing that are like, that's right where your mind is going. That is not what I'm saying, okay? In the sense that you know your wife is beautiful. That's why you married her. I mean, the passage is explicitly clear. The passage is saying, Jesus' desire from the church is that he would wash us and sanctify us so that there's no spot, no blemish, no wrinkle, that we're perfect. He died on the cross, he washed us of our sins, and now he's beginning a work in our lives where he's working on those rough spots. Nothing brings out rough spots than marriage. Whatever character flaws you guys have, I promise you, you can hide them from me. I hide most of mine from you. All right? Straight up. My wife had a headache this morning and couldn't come to church, and I was like, thank you, Jesus. Because I know after church, she'd be like, let me tell you about some of his flaws. So I'm not, you don't get to. (laughs) And that's one of the ones that she would mention, by the way. You say stuff about me in the pulpit. I don't like it. Um, We're joking. This is Thanksgiving. We're having a good time. Listen, and I don't want to know you, like nobody come up to me and start like telling on each other about what, you know, about each other. Okay, That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. Here's what I'm saying. If you got flaws, you probably didn't know the flaws you had until the day you said, I do, okay? And then, from that moment forward, they all came out. Sooner or later, some of you are looking at me like, sooner, sooner. (laughs) Like I said, you don't need to tell me anything. I don't need to know. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Christ's desire for the church is to chip away at those flaws which means men. Christ's desire for you is that you would lead in your home in such a way to cultivate your wife and your kids and your family in such a way that they would be like Jesus, that they would not grow nasty character flaws. And when you marry a woman, you know, sometimes she's already got those character flaws, and it's not your job to look for every opportunity to point those things out to her. On occasion, after the fight, many days later, you might mention it. Remember, your desire, Christ's desire for you, is not that you would just put up with your wife; that you would love her and cherish her, and seek not only for her to be beautiful in appearance, but beautiful in character. Your wife is your responsibility. And if she understood that, that your desire was for her to be the most beautiful person, not only in appearance but in character, the most beautiful person ever, and that your goal as man was to lead her and your kids in such a way that you would be the postcard family. If she understood that every time you brought up some minor disagreement and every time you brought up some issue, that your goal was not to like point fingers or castigate or to lay blame, but so we could grow as a family through the difficulty. If she understood that was your goal, and if that is your goal, if that's your heart, then I promise you, you can have these discussions. And it's not the end of the marriage, and it's not the end of the, it's not the end of your family. We're not talking divorce. My wife and I have spent 13 years now not getting a divorce. We got married young with no money and our parents said, please for the love of God, don't do that. So we rebelled against our parents, said yes to each other, we had no money, we were 19 and 20 years old. You think there were some problems that came about? Absolutely. Jesus was there. We didn't have two pennies to rub together and yet we made the commitment (laughs) without any money. We're going to give 10% to the Lord. We're going to tithe. We didn't have any time. We were working all kinds of minimum wage jobs to try and make ends meet. But we said, you know what? No matter what, we're going to pray together. I mean, I was so dead tired the other day, I didn't even want to read my Bible. We said, no matter what, we're going to read our Bible. I was talking to a guy the other day, and um, he says to me, you know, I don't think you and your wife ever fight, do you? I so, said, well, not so much anymore. And it was a true statement. I wasn't bragging. Our home was a very happy home. We do fight still. It happens once in a blue moon. But it's very rare. And it's because we are committed to pulling alongside Jesus. We're in the yoke with him. If you were to tell your wife that your desire was for there to be peace in your home, for your home to be the happiest possible home, and that you as a man were going to take your responsibility in submission to Jesus Christ, and that you, in submission to him, were going to do everything possible to making this the best possible place on earth for your kids, for your wife, and for anyone who might come to enjoy the hospitality of your house. You would find unbelievable joy in that. Number two, now here's where I usually get into a little bit of trouble. Look back at what it says, verse 22. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands and I know why you don't want to so often because most of the time when those arguments come about, speaking on behalf of the men here, our hearts aren't entirely right in those arguments. And our desire isn't necessarily to cultivate the home and to turn everybody in that home into the most beautiful person possible. Too often our time, our our purpose in that moment is just to be proven right just to win the argument at the expense of the relationship. That's why wives don't like submission, because it's not in Christ what the men are often demanding. And Yet, ladies, the word says what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands, look at this, as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit. That's what the text says. I'm going to give you a little hint. If your, wife, if your husband comes to you and makes some asinine demand that doesn't make any sense, and you're just like, okay, fine, whatever, and you just do it, sooner or later your husband will clue into the fact that this makes absolutely no sense. Sooner or later, he will, if you pray for him a lot, maybe. In my case, it required lots of prayer. He will sooner or later come to his senses and realize that this is a foolish thing that he's, that he's suggesting. You, as a wife, are obligated to consult with your husband and say, you know, like, here's what the Bible says. I am going to be faithful in this marriage, but... Let's look at what the Word says first. You have that freedom. At the end of the day, though, Scripture says that the husband is the head. Sooner or later, somebody has to be responsible for making the decision, for pulling the trigger, for saying this is how it's going to be. And the Bible says that's him. And your job as his wife is to help him in that in the best of your ability. So talk him to it. talk to him, talk him through it. Have him explain it to you. Have him help you understand. You might disagree. At the end of the day, love requires submission. Sometimes that's a really hard thing. But it's important. It's important for the happiness of your home. And last but not least... This is the one where we're all like, yes! Look at this, children, chapter 6, verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord. Now, you need to understand, whatever the concept that's being presented to us in chapter 6, verse 1, that's the same concept that's been all the way through. We're like, yes, children, obey me, Woohoo! hoo if we're going to seek obedience from our parents, we need to first be demonstrating obedience ourselves. Amen? I don't hear so many amens to that. It's kind of quiet out there. If your children don't listen to you and they run off half-cocked and do whatever they want, what's your home like? I mean, I'm just curious. You know what my home is like? It's anarchy. It's craziness. It's loud. It's out of control, and things start to break. I'm sure you probably, like me, have ground rules for your kids, not because you want to just steal away all their fun and make them like mindless little robots. Keith, don't disagree with me, Keith, okay? <laughs> Keith and I joke all the time about this. It's joking, too, just FYI. We don't want them to be mindless robots. We're not trying to steal away their joy. We want them to have lots of joy. And it's just not enjoyable to eat your food straight off the din- dining room table with no plate because your kids smashed all the plates playing frisbee. There's no joy in that. You guys know what I'm saying is true. Same way we lay down rules for our kids, it's not because we're trying to take their happiness from them. And as little children, they don't grasp that. They think, what do you mean I can't eat ice cream and chocolate chip cookies and Twinkies and pie and all this stuff and forget the rest of the meal? What do you mean I can't just eat all this stuff right before bed? What do you mean I have to wait till I'm 35 to drink a Coca-Cola? What is that? Like what are you saying? Like What are these ground rules? I don't get it. You're just trying to take all my joy from me. No, believe it or not, cuz with my daughters when I give them too much sugar and candy, they vomit. Everybody likes the sweetness going down. It doesn't taste quite the same coming back up. So I say to my child, I love you. You're going to have a little bit of this, and that's it. Well, that makes no sense. What? You're trying to take my joy from They don't say it like that. They're three and, three and five, so they're not that sophisticated. But it's the same idea, right? If that's how it is with our kids, if our biblical requirement before God is to teach our children to obey us as parents for their joy, and everything that has followed is the same. Husbands and wives, husbands, obey the Lord. Starting there. Men, obey the Lord for the sake of your joy. And wives, it's the same. It's for the joy of the home. As we close, we're going to leave here and we're going to go and we're going to eat lots of turkey and we're going to eat pie and dessert. There can be, for a moment, joy in the dessert. And desserts are great for dumping lots of sugar in our bloodstream and getting us all jacked up so that we can go on to the next thing. If you ignore the Bible's teaching on submission to Christ and how submission needs to be worked out in all the different spheres of your life, you can make it go round for a what? But it won't last. There won't be any endurance. Sooner or later, that, that bus is going to break down. So, Bridge Baptist Church, my encouragement to you is that you would submit to Christ, take his yoke upon you for the joy of your home and for your own joy in your own life. Let's bow for a word of prayer.